Welcome to Walk on the Wild Side. I'm Crispin Baines. I'm one of the founding members of The Wild, and I'm your host for this show. In, in this episode, we're chatting with Ashton Applewhite. We traveled over to Brooklyn, spent some time in Ashton's house with her. It's a great episode because, in our opinion, she's one of the people that's truly leading the fight to end ageism. Sleeves up in the trenches. You can find it all on thischairrocks.com. What we love most about Ashton is that she isn't afraid to tell it how it is. So for a no-nonsense, no-bullshit conversation, please listen on and enjoy. So welcome to Walk on the Wild Side, the podcast where we're uncovering the people and the ideas that help us all to flourish throughout the life course and leave a legacy to be proud of. We're here today with Ashton Applewhite, uh, who, who requires no introduction. You heard about her in the bio. Uh, it's wonderful to be here at Ashton's house on a, uh, a rainy day in Brooklyn. Thank you for accommodating us. Um, it's actually the second time I've been to your house. Uh, the first time was, was relatively recently. I was here at a, a circle event. Uh, must give a shout out to our mutual friend, Charlotte. Uh, we love what she's doing with Circle and, and bringing the generations together in, in an authentic way. And thank you for hosting that event. And um, as a product of that, thank you for hosting, hosting us today. Thank you for not making me go out in the rain. <laughs> well, um, so why don't we start at the beginning? You know, there's, uh, there's, there's so much to, that we can get into and, and we're going to go in a few different directions today. Um, but... For the benefit of, of me and for, for the listeners, how did this begin? What's your story? And, and perhaps more importantly, what's the, what's the calling? <laughs> uh, I, I wish I had a tidy, soundbite-friendly answer. If you look at my weird bio, it's, it's obvious that I've never had any kind of plan whatsoever. Um, I, the last time I had a, a full-time job was when I moved to New York to work in book publishing, which I did because I like to read. So that is as an intentional as I've ever gotten. Um, this started as a project uh, about older people who work when I was in my mid fifties and in hindsight, which is the only way I see any patterns and probably inaccurately even then um, it was because I was getting nervous about getting old or, you know, I think feeling just sort of the, the free-floating generalized dread um, that most of us feel um, about growing old, although one of the most interesting things, and there's a study to prove it, um, done by AARP and the University of Southern California, so blue-chip research all the way along, that shows that the more people know about aging, the less anxiety they feel about it. And right. of course, to you and me, this is no surprise, partly partly because our fears are so out of proportion to the reality, but also because there is a ton of, you know, evidence about the ways that aging enriches us in addition to the losses we all already know so much about. Right, yeah. So, project about older people who work, inspired by my in-laws, um, who were in their 80s at the time and were booksellers and said people kept asking them, so when are you going to retire? So it started as a blog called so when are you going to retire.com, which at least got me to learn how to do a tiny bit of HTML and write, 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 you know, post on a website. Right. And, but the focus on work was not all that interesting because it's intuitively obvious why people like to work. 
and why it's good for us. And also, I knew that it was a sort of safe way of dipping my toe into the scary waters of oldness while pretending that focusing on older people who were fortunate or courageous or lucky enough to be sort of going on in, in the world the way they always had been so I didn't have to, you know, look under the bed for the scary stuff. And eventually I realized I had to. But the real... And it took me a long, long time to realize I had to write another book to become a public speaker, sort of by accident. But the catalyst for the book happened very early on, or for the whole project, I should say, not just the book. The catalyst for the project occurred fairly early on because I started to research longevity because that's how I work. And learned in five minutes that almost everything I thought I knew about being old was not nuanced enough or way too negative or flat out wrong. And that really was the spark uh, that set me on this path because I became obsessed with why so few people know these things. Right, right. And thanks to the work, the, the, the gap is narrowing, but there's a long way to go. So let's let's talk through the book. How did it originate? Um, what was the journey of of, of writing it? Uh, the best thing about 2019 was that I was on a panel where anytime anyone said the word journey, everyone had to take a shot. So it's transformed <laughs> okay. the word yeah. journey for yeah. me. Um, you know, I, I find writing a book incredibly difficult. People say, so what are you going to write next? I'm, I'm plugging away at one every 20 years. So you'll get probably get a better answer to that 15 years from now. Um, I ended up self-publishing the book because the major publisher which had published my previous book, um, the editor looked me straight in the eye and said, um, we're concerned that no one else is writing about this. And I managed to squeak out that I thought she should see that as a feature, not a bug, instead of the um, cruder question hovering at the forefront of my consciousness. And But I have to say... No one was interested in making the kind of offer that I thought such a big and professionally executed idea deserved. And with the help of my partner, Bob Stein, who um, has decades of experience in electronic publishing, I did self-publish the book. This chair rocks a manifesto against ageism. And uh, this spring, in March uh, 2019, it was published by Celadon, which is a new imprint at Macmillan. So, and it was published in the UK. It's about to come out in Australia, where I'm about to go on a tour. So, you know, it just takes time. Um, fortunately, I am dogged by nature. <laughs> I think you have to be. And unfortunately for the rest of us, we, we need people like you to, to lead the charge. Um, so there's a movement now. That's, that's what we're calling it. How would you describe the movement today? I, I, I so want to hear what you have to say, but perhaps not, um, not on the air because I'm, you know, I'm so immersed in it because I have been calling for a social movement from day one. If we were looking at the role of women in society, think where we would be without the women's movement, the global women's movement of almost 50 years now right. duration. If we are looking at the position of, of older people in society, likewise, we need a global grassroots movement to change the way we think about age and aging. And 
by analogy, think about where sexism and structural discrimination factor in to cramping and limiting the role and voice of women, that is where ageism operates in every domain to cramp and silence older people. Although I do always make the point that ageism is any judgment on the basis of age and that young people experience a lot of it as well. And the goal here is not to have more stuff for old people. It is to build a, a world that supports, a world that, that acknowledges our longer lifespan, yep. that develops roles and institutions to support this, because it's not all ageism. This stuff is new. It's yeah. happened in the blink of an eye from an evolutionary point of view and even an anthropological point of view. So we have this incredible opportunity. Whatever we create has to benefit and sustain people, young people too, because it's really hard to be in your 20s. It's really hard to be in your 30s when you have little children. And then you have the midlife trough to look forward to. So, you know, we need to rethink the whole damn thing. It's not just about supporting older people, although, of course, older people do bear, uh, hugely bear the brunt of ageist attitudes and stereotypes. I think that's that's right at the heart of it. And and before we go through that, let's go back a step. You know, we've got a problem with aging, ageism. People are being discriminated on based on their age or perception of their age. Was it always like this? And how do we get how do we get to this? How do we get in this mess? Um, I shouldn't plug someone else's book, of course, but Mark Friedman in um, How to Live Forever does a wonderful job of of describing sort of how we got here. I talk about it in my book as well. Um, Bill Thomas has a wonderful book, Second Wind. He's really a historian. Uh, um, there has always been ageism in an absolute sense. You know, if, if if Genghis Khan was at the door and you had to pile everything you owned on a pony or a camel, well, the, the slowest and the weakest would be left behind. So in that sense, there's some biological determinism to it. But I, as you can see, I can't really make that... Um, argument with much of a straight face since Genghis Khan is no longer at the door and we have ways and devices on which to pile those of us who cannot run or walk as fast as everyone else. There is a lot more old age than there used to be. Uh, But there is also a lot more urbanization, um, global capitalism, and uh, trends, the industrialization, and all these trends have broken up the intergenerational family and social units, villages in which we once lived, where everyone had an obvious purpose across the lifespan. And the other thing that, that capitalism does is to tether the value of a human being to their conventional economic productivity, which makes children useless because they not only don't earn, they don't vote, so, you know, that's, I think, the fundamental reason why the United States is anything but a child-friendly or family-friendly society. Right. And with older people, many of us stop earning conventionally. And that, of course, that accounting um, is a deficit accounting. It omits all the, the, the myriad ways in which people who do not go to a job every day and collect a paycheck contribute. Even, for example, if I were to stay home so that I could watch my grandchild so that his parents could go to work, I am enabling them to be conventionally economically productive. All the volunteer activity, by far the most elder care in the United States is performed by other older people for free, 
with a value of billions of dollars because, you know, they look in on each other. So let's factor all that. And all those things have, have you know, fomented ageism. There is more older people. Um, there are more older people. And, you know, in anxious times, we look for scapegoats. And the young and the old are, um, you know, less able to defend themselves against these charges. Yeah, yeah. I think that's... I think that's right, and and that's how we've got to this point. And defending against the charges is, is an important part of it, and it's at the heart of, of what we're doing. And not even perhaps, it's, I know that's my own language, but refusing to be defensive about it, right? right? Refusing to, go, to operate from the point of view that old age is a deficit. Right. It is both. I mean, I am not a Pollyanna. There are all sorts of legitimate challenges associated with scaling up the support that an aging population will require. And there are scary things about getting older, running out of money, you know, ending up alone, getting sick. Those fears are real and legitimate. But let's tell both sides of the story and not operate, you know, oh, old people suck up all the resources. Well, we don't suck them all up. And that is, you know, pensions and retirement and um, health insurance were designed precisely for that reason. So that people who needed more assistance in remaining autonomous and not being a drain on other people arbitrarily and unfairly could have that. So that means the system is working. Yeah, I think think an important part of the the conversation, which, which I think you're right at the heart of, is... Is, is giving the counter argument to this notion of the silver tsunami that we talked about before. And where's that coming from? What's the agenda behind that? And, and saying, well, hang on a minute, there's actually a completely different way to look at this. Absolutely. I mean, I, the silver tsunami was a phrase coined by a demographer, I think, in the 70s for, you know, this, this wave of old people, you know, poised on the horizon to swamp our healthcare and social safety net and suck the resources of future generations out to sea. And conflict sells papers. You know that everyone's going to look to see, oh my God, that's terrifying. I need to learn about it. The older population, you know, the, the, the baby boom getting older is hardly a tsunami. It is the best studied demographic phenomenon in history. Scientists have been tracking it for decades. A better question is why are we not better prepared? But this kind of alarmist language justifies the fear and neglect of older people, even elder abuse, right? And so, so let's look at how we can prepare for it and tap into um, a tap into the abundant opportunity it also presents. Uh, social gerontologist Jeanette Liardi came up with a beautiful phrase, which is a silver reservoir, right. which really shows the power of language. I mean, suppose that tsunami, instead of you know crashing on an undefended shore, fills up an unprecedented. Um, you know, reservoir of the social capital of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of more healthy, well-educated adults than ever before in human history. How do we shape a future that allows us to take advantage of that? Yeah, I think it's, that's, that's, it's such a critical part of it. And also the, the empowerment notion of the people who represent that demographic, the people who are getting older, which is everyone which is everybody (laughs) in in feeling i mean i guess i'm trying to say that part of it is changing the social narrative about aging and how and how we view it so that you don't see it as a 
condition to be confronted by. It is um, the, I mean, we tend to equate aging with either being sick or with dying. And I think that conflation is the result of an ageist society. People may look at me and think I am ancient, I'm 67, but I'm pretty sure they don't look at me and think that I'm dying. Uh, you know, dying is a discrete biological event that happens at the end of all that living. And, you know, the fact that there, you can go to the bookstore and see book, you know, t- t- bookshelves that say aging and dying, you know, those are two very different things. We are aging from the minute we are born. One of my many bugaboos is the use of the adjective aging when it should be older, right? Aging yeah. celebrities, you know, aging parents. Well, who didn't wake up a day older, right? Yeah. You know, and aging is a perfectly legitimate world, just like everyone's terrified of old. Everyone's right. terrified of aging. They're perfectly good words, yeah. but but we tend to use them um, as placeholders for all the scary things about aging instead of acknowledging the fact that aging really means moving through life. Absolutely, yeah. And we're all stakeholders, as you said. So let's talk about the before we talk about the some of the solutions and some of the the, the, the changes that we're um, that that have to happen and that are happening. Just in general, from your viewpoint, how is aging changing? How is the culture of aging changing? How is our perception of it changing? Is it um, are we are we starting to move in the right direction? I. I suspect that you could give a better answer to that because you are out there talking to all different voices, whereas I am mainly, um, you know, sitting in my room, banging my head against the computer with the uh, internet for, for uh, companionship. But of course, I do get out and talk to people. But I have a very um, particular point of view, which is to foment this kind of of broad-based social change at whatever scale and in whatever way people are comfortable with. So, you know, anytime someone says, you know, I, I read your book and I realized, oh, crap, I'm really biased. That to me is, is, it's tiny, it's a grain of sand, but it's where it all begins. It just has to, you know, replicate across many, many, many thousands of people. I absolutely see evidence really gathering speed, which is very exciting to me, that um, that ageism itself has become um, more and more part of the currency of the conversation. From uh, I mean, I have a Google prompt set to ageism. The list is longer every month. Three years ago, I had the honor of giving a keynote at the United Nations on the International Day of Older Persons, which I'm looking forward to when the world adopts my language, which is to call older people olders and younger people youngers. And then it would be International Olders Day. Doesn't that sound better? Sounds way better. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a UN um, you know, holiday to celebrate the, uh, the, the rights and position of older people around the world. And I called my talk end ageism or the rest is noise. And it was really an impassioned argument for how we have to look at ageism, the way it affects our language, the way it affects healthcare, the way it affects our own identity, the way it affects women's rights, that it has to be foregrounded in every imaginable domain or we will never have the fundamental culture change that is necessary in order to make the most of longer lives. And three years later, last Monday, the theme of the campaign 
was ageism around the world. The hashtag was expose ageism. I love that language, expose it, right? And initiatives in in Liverpool, in Ghana, in Dhaka, in Santiago, in Denver, everywhere. People in, you know, with doing in, in, I think it was Paddington Station in London, holding up unit cards that spelled out end ageism. That's evidence. I didn't make it up. You know, I didn't, it's not there just because I went looking for it. And that to me is incontrovertible evidence. I want to give a shout out to Australia, which um, launched uh, the first, to my knowledge, national anti-ageism campaign called Every Age Counts. I guess this is as good a time as any to mention a website called Old School, oldschool.info, which is a clearinghouse of free vetted anti-ageism resources because movement needs tools absolutely, and, yeah. and ways to share them. And since we started it, I started it with two colleagues a year ago, a year ago, August, and it's growing with leaps and bounds. We didn't think anyone would be terribly excited by uh, a clearinghouse of anti-ageism resources, not the sexiest phrase ever to roll off the tongue, but the response was amazing. And since we started it last, um, in August, we, last December, started a campaign section. I mean, these are full-fledged campaigns of different scales, of course, but not about living healthier, not about looking good, uh, explicitly about confronting ageism, what it is, and how do we end it. So the campaign section has already, I think, nine or ten examples, and we're adding more of those all around all around the world of people who are seeing that we need to mobilize socially and politically to confront ageism, whether it's in your whether it's in your family or your book group or your municipality, or your country, or the whole damn internet. Absolutely right. I mean, it's and, and it takes takes a village, takes more more than a village. Uh, and we'll definitely put a um, links through to uh, the clearinghouse in the show notes. Um, so let's talk about what what success could look like. You know, if if, if we continue in the right direction, and the the right stakeholders, meaning all of us, can reframe how we're looking at this as a subject. And you know, we get society in, 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 in the direction it needs to go. What could success, success look like? What, what, what should it look like? Well, I'm going to give a bigger answer than you probably like, which is to say that we are not going to achieve equal rights for older people without allying with people who are working towards equal rights for people of color, equal rights for women, equal rights for immigrants, equal rights for people with disabilities. There's a wonderful um, poet named Audre Lorde who said there's no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we don't lead single-issue lives. So, you know, if we we could, I mean, making things better for wealthy white people around the world is already happening. The question is, when will life be better for a, you know, penniless woman um, in, you know, somewhere in Africa where, where the demise of clan systems in certain countries have left, especially old widows um, who, are, who are murdered, yeah. you know, who, who are accused of witchcraft. So their land is taken. We won't be there 
mm-hmm. until we have protected all these people against all the damn things. And believe me, I know that is uh, that is a you know a pie in the sky proposition. Uh, social change is slow, but it is real. I mean, I think the you, you know. Um, an amazing analogy is how far we have come on gay rights and trans rights right. in a very short time. And that has to do with sex. Ew, ew, ew. You know, whereas right. it seems to me, um, but then again, my way of seeing things is not always so uh, obvious to everyone, you know, that equal rights across the lifespan is, a, you know, um, cootie free, no brainer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about success, are there any, North stars that you that you you can think of any people or, or groups that you've come across these these people are actually on the right direction they're, they're doing it right with this there's something we could learn from this oh lots of them I mean and you know and people are doing things in in different ways um, you know there there are a lot of groups of older women um, on the internet, a lot of which have a, f- a focus that is narrower than I would like because I would like them to be more overtly political. But that's that's the way I want to be. It's not it's not where they are, and it may never be where they are. And honest to God, no judgment. But I see, for example, some of them beginning to wrestle with the, um, you know, and, and these are women of privilege with the idea that competing to stay young is corrosive and problematic. And that as long as we women are buying that narrative, we are reinforcing ageism and sexism and patriarchy. And what the hell do I do with that? You know, that's a very brave struggle, especially for someone who's never thought in um, broader terms, you know, I, I mean, I'm very excited by what I see with the disability justice movement. Um, people who, you know, and, and those groups are um, hugely intersectional. Um, they acknowledge, you know, that, that bias reinforces and compounds each other. They are, many of the leading voices are young queer women of color, which is, I think, intrinsically interesting. And they are making alliances across all those groups. Age is not on their radar yet. I don't fault them for that. It's my job to find them. And especially if they, if pe- people with disabilities often have limited energy and their access is constrained and they often have left not much money because they're discriminated against so fiercely in employment. It's up to me to find them. And it's up to me to make a case that is valuable to them on their terms. But I know we'll get to them. And I know that when they do, when I do, or we do, hopefully there'll be lots of us. Um, Cause I, all I want is for a million more people to do some version of this again, on whatever way and on whatever terms works for them. I know they're going to not going to say, Ew, we don't want any old people. They're going to say, you know, maybe they won't say, why didn't we think of that? That happens when I ask people, what do you think of as criteria for diversity? And Mm -hmm. not that many people say age, but when I say, how about age? No one says that's a dumb idea. They're like, duh. And I think likewise that hitching age to the intersectional sled in that sense is a very small ask. And I think that we are reaching all kinds of really interesting tipping points and that the ground is plowed in a way that it was not for women's rights, you know, 50 years ago. I mean, Hillary Clinton was told she was taking a man's place at law school. Yeah. 
You know, we, we've moved on from that. And to say, gee, age is another thing about ourselves that we cannot change. And it is not right to be discriminated against. I mean, to pick another very privileged group, hollow tech, you know, mainly um, still ruled by privileged young white men. But there has been, there's more and more um, talk and even action. The big tech companies are starting to face and lose age discrimination cases what happened was that the, the the bros started to get old enough, which is to say hit their 30s and face age bias. Right. And it was for the first time, you know, it's the first form of discrimination that many white men encounter. And I think for some of them, it was a real forehead smacking. Oh, this is this is what the women have been whining about all those years. Perhaps yeah. I don't mean to speak for them. Yeah. But, you know, that has that is another catalyst. So I think it's really you know, coming from all directions in utterly different ways. And um, the more, the merrier. The more, the merrier. What, what's your take on, and this is often you know, thrown out there, that the boomers are changing the way we look at um, getting older um, because of their values and the value system being perhaps different from the generation before them. Do you have any, any sense on that? <laughs> um. Well, I am a boomer, born dead center, 1952. My partner is the very, the vanguard, I think, 19, he was born in 1946, which is regarded as the first year of boomerdom. I mean, I don't like any generational labels. I I also feel like boomer is a pretty white term. It's rare to hear African-Americans refer to themselves as boomers. So there's something going on there. Um, no generation could ever be monolithic. I will now contradict myself and say that I am hoping that, you know, the radical spirits among us who were active in progressive causes in the 60s and 70s, I do hope that they will see this as a cause to get behind, you know, but I suspect, you know, some will and most won't. I think there is enormous potential there, but I also think, I mean, everything in this arena is double-edged, always, if you're being honest. Um, the boomers, there's a lot of boomer exceptionalism. You know, we're better. We're different. We don't, we aren't doing it like our parents did. We're different from our grandparents. Well, true enough, but um, that's a lot about privilege, and it is a, it is a force that um, does foster a lot of age denial. You know, if you think it's never going to happen to you or you're going to do it differently or you're going to do it better, I think that one of the reasons ageism is starting to gain traction is because it is dawning on my generation that, yes, you may be aging more slowly from a biological point of view. You may have uh, different ideas about where you want to live in your later years as opposed to some grim nursing home, etc., but that is being um, provoked by the realization, however welcome or unwelcome, that, oh, this stuff is going to happen to us just like it has to every other generation in history. A lot of the energy in um, age land is around boomers' purchasing power, of course, which right. is which is not surprising. I mean, it is shocking that ageism is so perverse that companies don't even want to sell stuff to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so, wide, so widespread. But again, consumer culture, consumer behavior is not going to drive culture change. Culture change has to precede this. 
Right. Right. It's yeah. not like seeing there's, oh, there's cool products to enable me to do some sport or wear some hip thing that didn't yeah. exist. I have to believe that that activity is available to me and that that look is not forbidden to me because it's not quote unquote age appropriate. That's going to drive it. Right. Absolutely. And for designers, you have to think that through. You have to think about who you're designing for in terms of what their values are. And I mean, fashion is funny. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a fetishization of very old, fashionable women. I really, I have no, I, I don't believe in the phrase age appropriate in any domain except for children, obviously. You know, if you, if you want to wear miniskirts till you're 120, more power to you. And I don't care Ooh. what your legs look like. We learned that from the body acceptance movement. Um, Many of us don't want to, I don't want to wear uncomfortable shoes. I never did wear high heels. Tragically, I do love shoes though. And um, my, everything's um, good on me, but my bones. And I, I have to be careful now about the shoes that I wear and it kills me, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, I'm going to put a shout out to shoe designers out there. Please make sharp shoes that also support the foot because I don't want to end up, you know, wearing only sneakers, which I already have to wear too much of the damn time anyway. In the, and there's, I mean, there's, there's so much to to be done there, and I think that fashion, some fashion designers are, are, are grasping it. While we're on the subject, and this is this is a big question, and I know we've chatted a, a little bit about it before, but I'm interested in gender and and how the 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 genders are aging. Are, are men doing it differently to women? Um, is is there a reason for that? You know, I just really, really want to get your... It's a big question. It's a big subject. But, you know, what's going on with that? I mean, there's a big, simple answer, which is that women experience the double whammy of ageism and sexism. So we experience aging differently. Even privileged white women who otherwise, you know, don't face other oppressions do face that. Susan Sontag called it the double standard of aging. The idea that aging enhances men up to a point and that but but progressively destroys a woman. And when we women compete to stay young or hitch our attractiveness or the idea that we are sexual beings to having, you know, the body and the face of a young woman. I don't like to use the word collude because it's because I don't like to blame people for their own loss of power and these are huge structural issues that disadvantage women but I and and sometimes it, it it disturbs me that sometimes I think the hardest ask I am making is for us and I really do mean women in particular partly because in a heteronormative sense women are so much more critical of our our faces and our bodies than men are Uh, to learn to look more generously at each other and ourselves. If as an older woman, you really think that you are less valuable, less interesting, less fun in bed than the woman you were when you were young and frankly didn't know squat, think about, and, and many of us do. Because right. because the culture tells us that at every turn, every time you open a magazine, every time you look at a billboard, that's the message. So I do not fault anyone for thinking that. But please think on where those messages come from and what purpose they serve. They come from a culture that wants us to be afraid 
that wants us to feel shitty about ourselves, that wants us to spend money on all kinds of crap that doesn't work and that the less fortunate do not have access to, so that we don't claim our place at the table. And I used to say, why don't we go, why are we, we're competing so fiercely in the workforce for two seats at the table. And then I started to say, wait, wait, why, why only two? It should be 50. And someone corrected me recently. She said, why 50? How about 100%? And I really like that idea too. I've been accused lately of not being nice enough to um, white men. And frankly, that tells me I'm doing something right. <laughs> yeah. I, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting subject, and I think you're right about the double the double standard, and that that, that just has to change. Economists yeah. call it the attractiveness penalty. How's that for a loathsome term? In in the context of the workforce, right? Yeah. Women are never the right age. We are not promoted when we're young because we might have children. Mm-hmm. And women in America stop being promoted at the same rate as men to managerial positions at age 34. Mm-hmm. And by the time you're 40, even men start being discriminated against for being too old. Women are never the right age. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the, the, let's talk about that in the context of work. Employers that are listening to this and thinking, hang on a minute, there's, 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 there's change happening here. Am I, are we missing out by not harnessing people with life experience are we first of all discriminating um <laughs> by by not letting people you know continue to work um that in the context of of, of getting older and aging and aging perhaps with with feminism as well do you have a, a view on that how the world of work is right now and and and, and perhaps should be given the the demographics and, and the Listen, movement you know in in the rainbow colored kumbaya world Everyone would be judged in terms of what they are capable of and interested in without regard to how old they are, how fat they are, how white they are, you know, what their abilities are or anything. I often think of um, the um, experiments that were conducted and I think have have continued to be now used um, in um, orchestras in Europe which were made up entirely shocker of white men, older white men. Right. Once they made a screen so that so that the people who, who were not who were who were not trying to be prejudiced, right? So much of this bias is unconscious and it is really hard to change how we think about yeah. things. And then I heard they also had to put in a carpet so they couldn't hear what kind of oh, shoes couldn't. people were wearing. <laughs> but the orchestras diversified. If we could have a culture where the capacity of every individual job applicant was judged individually, then and somehow magically our bias was erased from our minds by the great magic eraser in the sky stuff would diversify. We don't have a great magic eraser. Um, you know, it's obviously in, inefficient to weigh every single candidate on the basis of every single thing they know. I know this is pie in the sky. But for sure, we can do better than we are. We know that age discrimination in the workforce is illegal. We know it's wrong. And we know it's stupid. I mean, one of the another indicator that ageism is rising in public awareness was this fall. There was an article, I think, almost every day in September for like a 10-day stretch in Forbes, in the Financial Times, in Fast Company, all these mainstream business publications saying ageism harms employers, costs companies money, and we need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. 
you know, one, then people say, well, what about, you know, what about young people? If we keep holding on to all the old people, there'll be no room for the young people. That's a myth. It's called the fallacy of the lump of labor. The amount in nature of work is not, fi- is not fixed. These are complicated problems. Yeah. You know, seniority, how do you balance that? But, uh, you know, against the, the utterly legitimate need of younger people to feel like they can move ahead and move up in an organization and learn more complicated questions but we can figure them out if we have the political will yeah which which leads me on to another question public policy i mean such such a big subject but have you thought about or have you been asked to even advise on what what how we could change public policy um that's first part of it second part of it are there any perhaps more progressive probably socialist governments that you've come across that are working on policy that helps with this? I mean, I don't have a a really good answer to that. Um, You know, the the last chapter of my book, which is called Occupy Age, and if the light were brighter in Europe, I could read it, um, you know, has a whole list of specific policy changes I'd like to see, for example, fund and, and reinforce in the U.S. the Elder Justice Act. You know, it finally got passed. Right. What is that? It's a it's a law that provides equal rights and protection for older people in institutional settings, in particular. Right. But you know, also, um, you know, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act. Let's fund it. Let's make the let's make everywhere um, accessible to everyone, uh, so that then so that then you have you know the curb cut effect. When when the ADA was passed, then they started putting in because it was federally mandated those curb cuts so that every right. curb. Well, guess what? Two things happened. You know, uh, skateboarders used them. People pushing carts used them. People with strollers used them. So they were clearly not just for a tiny minority of people in wheelchairs who also used them. But more importantly, they became destigmatized. Right. They became a normal part of the landscape. Things universal design is called universal design because if those if jars everywhere were big enough to open, then you wouldn't have to feel awkward asking for the you know um, special you know. Um, grown-up version, you know, or the or the type that you could read. If the signs were big enough to read everywhere, that's good enough for everybody. Um, but there is a whole list of policy changes. There are millions of people, really smart policy wonks, working really hard on exactly those questions who can give you more detailed answers. I am working on the broad culture change level so that when then in each domain the person says, here's something we could do to make this park, to make this school, to make this community more age-friendly, I like to point out that community is going to be all age-friendly. It's not just expensive stuff we're doing for old people. A community that is good for older people is good for families. It's good for commuters. It's good for everyone. And, you know, it's not, you're you're not doing things. I mean, a, a world that is better to grow old in is a better world for women. Yep. It's obviously a better world for people with disabilities, which frankly, most of us are going to end up right. in that in that category sooner or later to some degree. So again, it's for all of us. Um, you know, it's better for people of color because we become, um, because everyone, no matter what color your skin is, gets older. Yeah. And because I think it awakens us to... Um, unjust systems everywhere around us and so on down the line. So these are improvements um, for a better world for all, hokey yeah. though that sounds. No, and, you, and it's true, as you said previously, it, it all ties in, you know, this this notion of um, go, going after ageism 
it should be hitched up to the other social movements. The other you know, they all they it, it 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 all ties in together. And if you're um, interested in living better or advocating for living better, um, then that's that's part of it. Um, so we've talked about it on a macro level, on, on a personal level. If 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 someone is listening and you know is is feeling older, and you can feel older when you're twenty or forty well, or sixty. What does older mean? Yeah, uh, feeling um, left behind or marginalised um, be- because of their age or perceptions of their age. What would your one-on-one advice be to somebody who's feeling ageism? My first piece of advice would be to think about your language and think about how we use feeling old as a placeholder for the thing we are actually feeling, which is left out, which is ugly, which, or, you know, unattractive, or um, like people aren't interested in what you have to say. Try to break the habit of using old as a placeholder because you you know I'm too old for that you may be too lazy for that you may be too out of shape for that you may be way too smart for that but age is never the reason so the very first step is to think about your own attitudes towards age and aging because they are biased because everyone's attitudes are biased because we have grown up being barraged by negative messages about age and aging from from childhood on from children's books on, from Disney cartoons on. So don't beat yourself up. The bravest thing we can do, and it's not fun, is to look at our own bias and go, oh, crap, I'm, I'm part of this. You know, I'm, I'm complicit in that sense, in my own marginalization. Yeah. The next step, and it's not for everyone. You know, maybe you just stop using old that way, you know, or, or point out in a, in a tactful kind of way mm-hmm. when someone else does it. You know, say, gee... You know, does does it really have to do with your age or does it have to do with your desires or what you've learned along the way or whatever? Right. You know, just changing language, just seeing it, you know, don't if, you know, look at the friggin' birthday card aisle, you know, it's not funny mm. to self-loathing. There's nothing funny about self-loathing. There's mm. nothing healthy about it. Mm. So don't buy those cards, you know, and don't don't reinforce them. I mean, I don't even like to say don't. Go ahead and buy the card. You know, do right. what you got to do. I mean, I, I, you know, we, we, you know, in the workforce, there's, you know, I get these prompts for, you know, how you can avoid age discrimination, you know, when you're looking for work. And most of them are about Botoxing your resume. If that's what you need to do to get a job, you, you know, absolutely no judgment at all no one has any time for political struggle if you can't feed your children but as long as we are leaving early accomplishments off our resume or dyeing our hair just to cover the gray and not enjoying that particular tyranny or whatever it is lying about our age um we are reinforcing age shame you know and why should getting older be shameful and we are giving a pass to the discrimination that makes those behaviors helpful. So it's not until enough of us, and I don't know how long it's going to take, um, stop doing that, that we change the culture. But we can each change it in little ways, uh, you know, along the way. Every little bit ripples outward. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And it's you're right. It's just changing the lens that you look at it through. A tiny Um, bit. 
tiny just, bit. But just by a tiny bit. Because, I mean, the cool thing is once you start to see it in yourself, then you right away start to see it in the culture. That's what consciousness raising did for the women's movement. And I should say, my website is thisjerox.com resources link um there's a, a downloadable guide who me ageist how to start a consciousness raising group around age bias what happened with the women's movement is women came together compared notes and realized oh this is not my personal problem my personal failing right these are that you know that i can't get promoted that my boss is patting me on the butt that you know i can't my, my, I don't have power in my marriage. These are structural issues that are a function of the world in which we live, and we can come together and do something about it. And that's called, that, that transition of, of your attitude is called cognitive liberation. I just learned that. I love that phrase because it's sort of wonky, but, but also political. And that is what we need to do with aging. If you can't get a job because you have wrinkles or you were born, you know, before 1980, um, that's not your fault. You are facing structural discrimination. We know how to combat it, and it's time. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, my mind's racing now. There's, just, there's so much <laughs> going on with that, you, that, you, that you've given me. It's, it's great. On the personal level, so, so somebody who, who perhaps is listening but that hasn't really thought about this, what is the, the right mindset? You know, you finish listening to this and you think, okay, I get, it, I get it now. I, I need to, you know, to 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 rethink or re- recalibrate. What's the right mindset and right approach? When There's thinking no about... right mindset. Okay. There's no right approach. I know it, mm-hmm. e- aging is just it is, is the one you know journey. Mm-hmm. Take a shot um, on which each of us embark the day we're born. You know, you might, you know, have a particularly, you know humiliating lesson from which we all learn a great deal more than the little, you know, things we learn in less bruising ways. Um, There is no destination either. When I was foundering, you know, I sort of figured out that I, you know, had learned all this stuff and I didn't know what to do with it. I said to myself, I said, if you can't sell an idea about feeling better about getting older to the baby boom, you are truly an idiot. But I also said more significantly that if all I get out of it is that I feel so much better about the years ahead, that may have to be enough. And it is a lot. It is better when you look, you know, under under the bed for the dragons because they're dragons. Right. You're going to yeah. get older. Some part of your body's going to fall apart. People you've loved all your life are going to die. But they're also enormous gains and gifts. That's why no one actually wants to be any younger. Think about that. No one actually wants to erase it, no matter how, erase their years, no matter how scared they are. So tap into what you know. Um, You you know, because... It's, I mean, I would say it's better on the other side, but that implies that you go through a gate or, you know, that there's some binary right. here. There's no binary. There's no gate. Even if it's, you know, that you just, you know, a little less often when you wake up and look in the mirror, you don't think what the hell happened, which we all do, you know, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but that little voice grows quieter. If that's quote unquote, all you get out of it, that's a lot. Right. And, you know, each person is, is of course the boss of what they have the energy, the courage, the desire, and the interest to get out of it. Yeah, 100%. 
let's let's talk a little bit more about you because you're um, um, you you've become such a great voice and a leader. One, one of the one of the notions that we're interested in is the notion of flow and how do you achieve flow and work and that's it. That's really about purpose. You have such a sense of purpose in in what you're doing. What is it that's giving you meaning in this work, and what are the what are the gifts that the work is giving you personally? I achieve flow for about five minutes a year. It feels like I achieve flow in the very very occasional times where I sit down, force myself to sit down and write something and look up, and more time has passed than I thought it was. Generally, the time passes grindingly slowly. Um, but then again, I write slowly. Um, I don't like the writing. I like the thinking. And I like waking up in the morning, um, you know, with an interesting idea. I have to admit, you know, even if it means I have to force myself to sit down and refine it, I, I like that iterative process. I mean, I feel incredibly lucky to be doing something that is so deeply interesting to me um, intellectually and politically. Um, it's, it, you know, the more I know... It, I feel like two things happen. The, the 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 few things that I'm pretty certain about, I'm able to refine my understanding of them. And then the vast field of things I have yet to learn about grows even vaster. But that, to me, that's the fun. It's like I'm not going to run out of interesting things to think about and talk about if we are talking about the journey on which every sure. human being embarks and the social and political context in which it occurs. For a generalist, I'm a generalist. Right. There's nothing that isn't potentially on this menu, and I love that. And it does feel important at the individual level to, you know, know just from friends and family or, you know, emails that come in over the transom saying, thank you for helping me see this differently and feel better or feel more energized or whatever it have, whatever form it happens to take in their life. And there's also no question that, you know, the planet you know, the planet's in trouble and that we are not going to address that biggest of all issues without everyone coming together on that. And that means all ages. Ageism is the biggest obstacle to that. Plus, and then there's the, you know, the separate phenomenon that we, more people are lo living longer than ever before in right. human history. So how do we make that, take advantage of that for um, individual, collective, and planetary, you know, gain. Yeah, yeah. That's there's there's lots to do. There's lots that has already been done. Thanks to you. One of the and one thanks and thanks to the movement. One of the the questions we like to ask all of our guests is um, heroes. Do you have any heroes? Um, I wish that I had met Maggie Kuhn, who was the founder of the Grey Panthers movement. The, what I've heard her and the video clips I've seen of her, um, she's just, you know, brave and clear and utterly unorthodox. So she's a hero, but I didn't get to meet her. Um, I was lucky enough to meet um, Dr. Robert Butler, Right. Um, in conjunction with a couple of journalism programs, he he ran a um, his he ran the International Longevity Center here in New York, and it partnered with the New York Times um, for um, these fellowships. And I 
applied when I swore I had a blog with 10 posts and, you know, perhaps five readers. And they took me on and that, you know, and then they let me audit in subsequent years. Mm -hmm. And I got to meet him and a number of times. And um, he was deeply inspired, inspiring. Unfortunately, he died, um, gosh, a while ago already. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I meet, I meet inspiring people all the time. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's two big names there. Maggie Kuhn, I would love to have met her myself. And I think she'd be, wherever she is right now, happy with what's happening. Um, I hope so. I'm sorry so. Bob Butler didn't didn't live long enough to see me stick it out. I keep a picture of him stuck, <laughs> oh, yeah. on, stuck on my... It's about as close right, as I get yeah. to a devotional object, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, phenomenal people. Uh, and as I said, I'm sure happy that, that things are being pushed, if not dragged, in, in the right direction now. Um, so I'm going to bring it to a close soon. Before we before we do that, for people that are now starting to get it and are interested in the movement and want to know more, what would you suggest are the, the first steps they should take? I feel like I answered that with the question about looking at your own language and stuff Hmm. i have a blog post which has 10 things you can do if you want to combat ageism so if you write me you could put that in the notes um and honestly if people really want to learn they should read my damn book but i don't want to say that because it's not free and i don't like to pimp myself but it's a really good book and if you really want to know more about ageism it is the best thing out there but but people can also just noodle around i i would it would be great if you made the point that I have been thinking out loud in blog form for 12 years. There is a ton of free stuff so they could just, you know, noodle around there. And, and you know, and, and hate to say it, but my TED Talk is a really effective piece of propaganda. So if they don't want to spend eight hours and 20 bucks reading the book, they could spend 11 minutes for free reading the TED Talk and sending it to 10 people and sitting in a room and talking about it. And that's all online. It's all available through This Chair Rocks. Um, and I'm sure we can um, put that into the show notes. So uh, last question, or a couple of last questions, to, to bring it to, to a close. The, it's often said that you know a, a search engine is good at giving us the answers, but a, a wise sage will ask the right question. Now that you know this is a show around flourishing and, 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 and trying to live better, what what's one question we could perhaps ask ourselves to get started in in the right direction um in in terms of you know reframing how we're looking at um aging and ageism um in 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 our own lives is there is there one one question we could ask one question you wish people asked you no, I love being asked questions I haven't been asked before, and you have certainly um, aced that. Um, I would urge people to, I think it's incredibly important to have friends of all ages, and we live in a, in a ridiculously age-segregated society here in the United States. So think of something you like to do. You know, you can't just go grab an old person or a young person and say, hi, let's be friends. But um, think of something you like to do and find an age-integrated group to do 
with it, whether it's, um, you know, stockpiling for the end of days or rescuing puppies or um, reading literary fiction. You know, it, 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 the idea that age tells you anything about what someone is interested in or what they're capable of, unless we're talking extreme athletics, you know, it's, it's really a, a ridiculous reason to be segregated. So push back against that in your own life i think that's a great a great piece of advice that everybody could follow um is there anything else you'd like to say before we close it is there any any final words of wisdom you'd like to pass on um push back push back against the narrative you know be less afraid fear makes us stupid and fear segregates us and fear fills us with needless dread, and that itself cramps our lives and our prospects and our, you know, and um, they're real things to be afraid of, but they're typically not the ones we are afraid of, and um, pushing back at what, again, at whatever scale and pace um, feels right for you, feels good, and helps pave the way for others. Ashton, that's a great way to put it. Um... All that remains for, for me and for our listeners to say is thank you for being you. Thank you for the movement that you started and you continue to lead. And anybody who's listening knows how to find you and should join. And, um, um, yeah, thank you for, for wonderful answers and for the energy and, and everything that you bring. Thank you, Chris. My pleasure. Thanks to Ashton for welcoming us into her home and for a great conversation. We love your work, we love you, we love everything you stand for. Please keep on going, staying wild all the way. You can find Ashton at thischairrocks.com. We encourage you to watch her TED Talk, sign up for the blog, read the book, and go and see her speak. It's a great experience. You can find us at wildpeople.com, on Instagram at wildpeople. Thanks for listening, and stay wild. <laughs>